0: Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. If you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you do, would you open them up to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, if you don't have a Bible, let me encourage you to grab one of the hardback black Bibles from under your chair, and you'll want to turn to page 1002. We are in a series in the book of Hebrews which we've entitled, Jesus is Better Than. And in this series, we're walking through the book of Hebrews, and as we do, I hope that you're beginning to see that the main argument of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is better The book of Hebrews is focused on the complete supremacy of Jesus Christ and on working to ensure that we, as his disciples, understand why that's so important. So as we began in chapter 1, we saw that Jesus was a better messenger than all the other messengers that God had used. And because he's a better messenger, he brings us a better message. As we moved into chapter 2, we encountered the first command in the book, which was to listen, to pay attention to Jesus, to pay attention to that better message that he brings. And as we considered that command, what we saw was that Jesus is better than drift. Drift takes us where we don't want to go. And while following Jesus may take work at times, what we saw was that it's completely worth it. Then last week, as we wrapped up the rest of chapter 2, the author of Hebrews gave us three arguments for why Jesus is better than angels. He said he's better because he sacrificed himself for us. He's better because he is the founder of our salvation. And he's better because he understands what it's like to be us. We saw that we're saved by God's grace through Jesus, that we're not our own saviors, and we saw that Jesus, as the founder of our salvation, is a savior who knows far better than we realize what it's like to be us. And because he understands, he's able to to not just be the savior that we want, he's able to be the savior that we need. He's able to lead us into the true rest that's found in his salvation. That's what we saw last week. And as we continue in the text today, as we move into chapter 3, the author of Hebrews is going to move on to demonstrate that Jesus is better than Moses. And as he does, he's going to talk about the rest that's available in Jesus. And he's going to specifically warn and encourage us not to miss out on that rest. So as we look at the text today, I'm going to give you one big idea that's held up by three pillars of support. That's it. For, for my note-taking friends, if, if you're one of those type A personalities that you need it all right now, I'll, I'll give them to you right now. So, so here they are. The, the big idea that I want you to walk away with is that if we want to avoid the greatest threat to the rest that Jesus provides, there are three things that we need. We need to be careful. We need each other, and we need Jesus. That's our big idea with its three pillars for the day. That's it. If we want to avoid the greatest threat to the rest that Jesus provides, there are three things that we need. We need to be careful. We need each other, and we need Jesus. Now let me show you where that's coming from. Hebrews chapter 3, starting at verse 1. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Moses. As much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says today, For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father God, as we prepare to study this chapter in the book of Hebrews, as we begin to read over and really examine what it has to say, would you speak to our hearts today? Would you ready our minds to hear and receive what it is, the message you want us to hear? Would you be at work in us God, you give us in this text an important reminder to enter the rest that Jesus provides, and you give us a pathway to find that rest. So God, today I ask as we work through this text that you would speak to our hearts and minds to to enter into the rest that Jesus provides, that we wouldn't miss out on it because of unbelief, but that we would place our trust in you as our Savior. Lord God, we praise you for the work that you've already done in our lives, and we ask that you would continue to do that work. Be at work today. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen. Amen. In 1998, Tom Brokaw published a book that quickly became a bestseller. The book was part biography, part history, part wartime epic. The book was entitled The Greatest Generation. In his book, Brokaw tells the story of my grandparents' generation. It's a generation that was born between 1901 and 1927. They grew up in the Great Depression. They came of age during World War II. Following the war, they came home and went to college or joined the workforce. They raised their families. They built the suburbs. They became the driving force behind a booming economy and a vibrant society marked by rapid technological innovations. The book was was a hit. It it quickly became a bestseller. It was so successful, in fact, that an entire generation was renamed. You see, the greatest generation had been known as the GI generation. But following Brokaw's book, that changed. And, And the book was such a resounding success because it struck a sentimental nerve. It pointed back to a time in America where everything seemed to be good. Family values were strong. devotion to country was at its peak. That generation was marked by by this personal humility. They had done all these amazing things, but they never talked about it because they were just doing what everyone else was doing. To them, they just did what they had to do. When I first read the book as a young adult, I found myself in awe. I had a newfound and lasting respect for my grandparents' generation and all that they had done to make America and the world better. As I finished the book, I agreed with Brokaw. They really were the greatest generation. And a lot of people have come to that same conclusion. We look back on the generation that was in its prime in the 50s and 60s with a lot of fineness, fondness. It was a a wholesome generation, best characterized and captured by TV shows like Leave It to Beaver and Happy Days. It was a generation that gave us real life heroes like Alan Shepard, the first American in space, John Glenn, the first American to orbit the earth, and Chuck Yeager, the first man to break the sound barrier. They were led by great politicians like Dwight David Eisenhower and John Fitzgerald Kennedy. They really were an amazing generation who I think history will always hold in high regard. They were on the whole just a completely different level. They were up there. They were on their own level And as we consider Hebrews chapter three, one of the things we need to keep in mind about the original readers of this letter is that they had a greatest generation too. And the leader of that generation was Moses. He he was the servant that God had used to lead his people out of bondage in Egypt. He was the servant that God had used to bring Israel to the the rest that God had promised their fathers to, to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob And the truth of the matter is that that Moses really was as great as they believed. Moses really had done all the things they had heard. He was every bit the hero they held him up to be. But as our author begins to talk about Moses, what he wants his readers to know is that as great as Moses was, Jesus is even better. So he begins in verse 1, "'Therefore, holy brothers.'" You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Last week in chapter 2, chapter 2 concluded by reminding us that we have a faithful and merciful high priest who is able to help us when we are tempted, And with that in mind, our author is now calling us to really think about who that faithful high priest is, about who Jesus is. Here he calls him the apostle and high priest of our confession. You see, Jesus, the God-man, the perfect Savior, is both an apostle representing God to us and our high priest representing us in the presence of God. He's God's representative and he's ours. Which means that he's able to help, but but that's really just kind of an assumed point. It's kind of a side point in the text here today. You see, our author is describing him to get to a bigger point. And and his bigger point is that Jesus was faithful just as Moses was faithful. But but while they were both faithful, he wants us to see that Jesus was better than Moses. So he continues on in verse 3. He says, for Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. And I want you to see that the author, he's not saying that what Moses did or who Moses was, that he wasn't worthy of admiration. He's not pulling Moses down. He's lifting Jesus up. He simply says, as much as you admire Moses, as much as you look up to Moses, you need to look up to Jesus even more. As much as you want to emulate Moses, you need to emulate Jesus even more. And the example that he uses is is that of a house compared to its builder. And we, in 2020, we should be able to identify with that. I I can give you a kind of a, a modern example. If I were to mention some famous buildings like Kentuck Knob or, or Greycliff or Crimson Beach, if I were to mention the rookery, Congregation Beth Shalom, the Guggenheim, or Falling Water, many of you probably don't know what I'm talking about. A few of you probably do, especially when I mentioned the Guggenheim or Falling Water. Those are probably the most famous two, but but a lot of us have, have never heard of those buildings. But but here's the thing, architecturally they're they're very important. They're significant accomplishments. They're worth millions of dollars. People go to see these buildings all the time, and still, we don't know much about them. But if I were to mention the name Frank Lloyd Wright, I think a lot of you might know who I'm talking about. You see, he's arguably the most famous architect in modern history, the American Institute of Architects recognized him as the greatest American architect of all time. That's a title right there. It's one I will never have as I design my, my chicken coops and barns, but that is a title. Uh, in fact, a, a collection of, of Wright's work, a collection of several of his buildings, have collectively been labeled a World Heritage Site. He is one of, he, he's, he's the one who designed every single one of those buildings that I just mentioned. In fact, those buildings that I, that I mentioned, they're famous because Frank Lloyd Wright is the architect. He's the one that created them. So, so as much as those, those buildings are famed and honored because of that, that what, what, what the reality is is that there's more honor for the architect. And that's what our author here in Hebrews is, is trying to tell us. Jesus is worthy of more honor than Moses, just like the architect is worthy of more honor than the buildings. So he says this, and then he makes this per- parenthetical statement in verse 4. For every house is built by somebody, but the builder of all things is God. And the first part of that statement seems kind of obvious, right? Like, like, we don't need to say that. It's like, you don't go walk down the street, see a building, and say, huh, that just magically appeared right like that that building was built by somebody we we get that but the point that the author is trying to make is that everything all of it is created by God himself God is the builder he's the one who is due more honor and Jesus was appointed to his task as God's servant by God himself the creator the builder of all things So Jesus was worthy of more honor than Moses. And again, we need to recognize that we're we're not in any way reducing Moses' importance as the leader, as the prophet, as the servant of God. We're simply building an argument that Jesus is greater. So verses 5 and 6 continue. Now, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were spoken later. Later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And, and I need to stop right here and, and, and kind of point out, make, make a confession, if you will. One of my favorite kind of guilty pleasure TV shows, men, I'm sorry, okay, I, I admit this, I'm sorry. One of my favorite guilty pleasure TV shows is Downton Abbey. Okay, don't, don't, don't hate, don't hate. It's a great show. If you haven't seen Downton Abbey, it's a series set in England in the early 1900s, before, during, and after World War I. And the show revolves around a noble family led by the 7th Earl of Grantham, Lord Robert Crawley. But, but in, in that show, one of the main characters is a man named Mr. Carson. Mr. Carson was the butler. He was in charge of the entire staff at Downton. He, he was respected and honored by everyone, by the staff, but also by the family. He had his own private office. He oversaw the household diligently. He gave commands, and they were obeyed to the letter. He was at the top of the pyramid, downstairs, right? You see, as important and respected as Mr. Carson was, he was still just a servant, There there were limits to his authority, there were limits to the honor that he received, and and even the youngest of the Crawley children could give him a command, and and he had to obey. So over the course of the series, through many twists and turns, if, if you don't want spoilers, plug your ears for a second, one of the daughters of Lord Grantham ends up taking over the entire estate. His eldest daughter, Mary, comes to be in charge of everything. She she was over the household and the lands that surrounded it. Her her authority was unquestioned. She was faithful to ensure that the lands and the household thrived. And and in these two fictional characters in Downton Abbey, we, we see acted out what our author is describing here in Hebrews. You see Mr. Carson was a faithful servant in the Crawley household but as a servant he there was only so much honor that he was due. But but Mary Crawley was over the entire household. She was in charge of everything. She was serving in the role of a son because Lord Grantham didn't have any sons and in that role she was due a greater amount of honor. And it's the same thing between Moses and Jesus. Jesus is the son. He's he's on a holy higher plane. He gets a wholly higher level of authority and honor. But the kicker, the the big point that we need to see in these verses that are really just building up to the point, the big idea of our text today, what the author has been building to thus far is what we need to see in the last half of verse 6. And we are his house. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. If you write in your Bibles, you you might underline or highlight that statement. You see, the point here is, is that the house of God is not a building. This is not the house of God. This is the house of God. We are the house of God. God resides in us. The people of God are his house. And Moses was a servant in the house of God because he was part of that house. We are collectively the house of God, built by Jesus' saving work at Calvary. And, and I don't want you to, miss, I don't want you to misread the, the conditional statement at the end of that verse, though. Okay, it says, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. See, that statement there is not implying that you can lose your status as part of God's house. That, that, that you can lose your salvation. It's not saying that, that we need to keep ourselves saved. No, what this is saying is that if you want to know that if you're really saved, you want to know, am I a Christian? The evidence of that is endurance. True Christians are the ones who endure. True Christians are the ones who cling to hope. That, that doesn't mean you won't sin, but but it does mean that when you do sin, you continue to strive toward Christ-likeness. It means that you're going to repent of your sin and then get up and walk towards Christ. You continue to hold fast, to cling to, to hope in Jesus' finished work at the cross because that's what saves you. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is, is better than Moses because Jesus is the builder of God's house. He's the builder of our faith. And because he's the builder of our faith, our hope, our, our, he's, our, 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 he's able to offer us a rest. Okay, so, so because he builds it, he's able to bring us into rest. He's able to give us rest from the bondage of sin. He's able to give us rest from slavery of trying to earn our salvation, which is so wearying. So what our author is going to do now is he's going to point back to the greatest generation. He's going to po- point back to Moses and the, the people that he led, and he's going to use them as an example to encourage and exhort us to follow Jesus and to seize the rest that Jesus offers. Take a look with me, starting at verse 7. He, he continues and says, therefore. As the Holy Spirit says, today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my work for 40 years. Therefore I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And what we're seeing here is our author citing Psalm 95, verses 7 through 11. He, he points out the fact that regardless of who the human author of that psalm was, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit. That's why he says, as the Holy Spirit says. But, but what's so interesting as we consider this psalm, and, and what he's quoting here is, is, is that Psalm 95, it, it's, it's a psalm that calls us to worship. It's not like this dark psalm that's dragging us down, that's condemning us. It's, it's a psalm that's supposed to lead us to worship God. It, it begins, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. It's a song that's meant to lead us to worship God. It's not dark or threatening at all. It's a welcoming psalm. It's a a psalm that begins by leading God's people to worship him. It's It's a psalm that calls us to praise and glorify God with joyful hearts. But as it comes to a close, it concludes by calling God's people to remember their ancestors who had rebelled during the Exodus. It concludes by basically saying, hey, don't be like them. Let's worship God, but just don't be like them. You see, Moses had led the greatest generation out of Egypt. He had led them out of slavery. They they walked across the Red Sea on dry ground. As the Egyptian army pursued them, the Lord closed in the waves, drowned the army, set them free. As they journeyed into the wilderness, he fed them with manna and quail. He led them by a pillar of fire at night, by a pillar of cloud during the day. And still in in spite of all of that they rebelled when they came up to the promised land the the land of rest the the land with the rest that God had provided promised that he was going to give to their fathers to Abraham to Isaac and Jacob when, when they could see that rest for themselves they sent 12 spies over into the land and those 12 spies, they went and they saw, and they saw that the land was flowing with milk and honey. They saw that the land was everything that God had promised, but they also saw that it was peopled by a people who were strong and powerful. Some of them said, hey, it was, it was manned by people who were giants. And they came back and they gave that report. And in spite of everything that the people had seen and experienced in their journey through the wilderness... They they heard that report, and it caused them to doubt. And that doubt grew to the point where they didn't believe the promises of God. Everything that they'd seen. And finally, in that doubt, in that rebellion, God had had enough. And, And so he tells them, you won't enter my rest. You'll die in the wilderness. The next generation, they're the generation that's going to go into the promised land, but it won't be you. These people who had heard the voice of God, who had seen him perform miracle after miracle after miracle, they rebelled and they lost the promise. You see, this, this group of people, they had all of the evidence, but none of the faith all the evidence, none of the faith. And and what our author is telling us is that we don't want to follow that example. Unbelief had had caused an entire generation of Israel to lose out on the rest that God had promised. And what Hebrews is, is trying to convey to us is that that is just as much a threat for us today. You see, the greatest threat to the rest that Jesus offers us is unbelief. It's unbelief so our author quotes Psalm 95, and, and then we come to the core of this chapter. He, he gives us this, this example from their own history, and, and then he gives us two commands. One positive, one negative. So take a look, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. These verses here, these these two verses, they are the core of chapter 3. This is the center of our text. We've come to our big idea. You see, the greatest threat to the rest that Jesus offers us is unbelief. And right here, what we're seeing is what we need to avoid that, that threat. If we want to avoid the greatest threat to the rest that Jesus provides, there are three things that we need. And the first thing we need is to be careful. We need to be careful. He tells us, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an, an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. The, the Greek word translated take care here in the ESV, which is what we're putting here up on the screens for y'all, that Greek word is blepo. It, it means to see, to, to be aware, to be alert. The, the warning here is be on guard. The idea is that we are all prone to, to what could happen here. We're prone to be skeptical. We're prone to drift toward unbelief. So what our author is telling us here is be careful. He's telling us, don't have an unbelieving heart. That's evil. It will lead you away from the living God. And the warning here is so severe, it's it's so emphatic, that I I want to differentiate just a second, just a little bit, the difference between unbelief and doubt. Because there is a difference, and and we really need to understand that. Because the truth is, we've all had doubts, am I right? Right? I don't know where y'all are at. You you can decide for yourself. I will tell you, I've had doubts. Okay, I've read the scriptures and I've I've had some doubts at points in my life. Recently, we've all had doubts. I think that's part of a growing faith. But doubt, unlike a unbelieving heart, it can often lead us closer to Jesus, not away. I've told y'all before, one of my favorite little pericopes in the entire Bible comes from Mark chapter 9. The, in, in Mark chapter 9, there's this, this story about this man who's got a son with an unclean spirit. And, and, and in that, that little pericope, in that little story, the, the man brings his son to the disciples and asks them to cast that unbelieving spirit out of their boy. And he's, he's not, they're not able to do it. They can't do it. And finally, Jesus walks up and he, he's like, Hey guys, what's going on? What's, what's happening here? And the father tells him what's going on. He, he tells them that the disciples aren't able to do it. And, and then finally Jesus, he, he asks a few questions of the father and, and the father answers. And then Jesus says, or the father says, but if you can ha- do anything, have compassion on us and help us. There, there's like this, this plea that's kind of conditioned by just the smallest about a, a bit of doubt, just a, a little about a bit. And, and Jesus said to him, if you can, All things are possible for one who believes. And what I absolutely love about that little story with Jesus and that father is how the father responds because he he doesn't wait even half a second before we're told that, that immediately the father of the child cried out and he said, I believe, help my unbelief. And I've been there, like right there. I, I, I believe, I, I get it, I, I, I think so, but I'm, I, I'm struggling here. I need some help. You see, while doubt may question the truth of the gospel, in that doubt, there's still hope. That, that's where the father was at in that little story in Mark chapter 9. He he had some doubt, but instead of running away from the doubt, running away from Jesus, he leaned in. If you have doubt, that's okay. It's okay to have doubt. Lean into that. Lean in. Ask for help. Talk to Jesus about it. It's okay to say, God, I'm struggling with this right now. I need some help. Help me to lean into you. It's okay to do that. It's okay to go to other brothers and sisters in Christ and say, hey, I'm really struggling with that. And hey, if somebody comes to you like that and they're, they're talking to you about their doubts, that is not a moment to condemn them. That's a moment to wrap your arms around them and say, hey, we love you. Let's get through this together. You follow me here? It's okay to have doubt lean into it because it can lead you closer to Jesus talk to each other, talk to me, talk to to other Christians, talk to Jesus. What what Hebrews is talking about here is not the kind of doubt that that Christians encounter in their life. Because while doubts may cause us to question the truth of the gospel, an unbelieving heart, what that is, that's where we, we hear the message of the gospel. We hear the good news that's available in Jesus. And then we just turn and walk away in unbelief. And the Bible is telling us right here that that response is evil. It's rebellion. It's sinful. It it leads us to another translational phrase that, that we need to address. Because the ESV translates... Uh, translation uses, uses "fall away" in English for, for the Greek word aphiistamy." And, and that word choice might lead you down a wrong path if you're not careful. You see, aphiistamy, it, it means to depart, to depart from, to, to withdraw, to, to walk away from, to go away. And I mention this because there's an active sense in the Greek word that, that seems very passive in the English, "fall away." most other translations in fact of the of the bible in english most of them will say turn away here they'll say depart from the point is an evil unbelieving heart doesn't tear you out of your salvation but simply reveals that you were never saved in the first place you heard the message you did not believe and so you walked away Frederick Bruce, uh, you'll hear me quoting him a lot. He's one of my favorite authors, but he noted that falling away from the living God is is more positive, is a more positive activity than the English words themselves might suggest. It denotes rebellion against him. When the Israelites at Kadesh Barnina re- repudiated the leadership of Moses and Aaron following the spies' report, they, they revolted in effect against God who had appointed these two men to be their leaders. And for Christians to repudiate the apostle and high priest of their confession, Jesus, similarly appointed by God, would be, if possible, even more outrageous of a revolt against the living God. That's why it calls an unbelieving heart evil, because it's rebellion against God. It's saying what Jesus did at the cross was not good enough. I can take care of it for myself. I don't need that. I'm walking away. That's what an unbelieving heart is. So if verse 12 gives us the negative command, it's telling us to be careful, to to watch out. Don't have an unbelieving heart. If that's the negative command, verse 13 is the positive command. In verse 13, he tells us, but exhort one another every day, as long as it's called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. So we come to our second pillar here. If we want to avoid the greatest threat to the rest that Jesus provides, the second thing we need is each other. We need each other. He, he's telling us here to exhort, to, to encourage each other. How, how do we do that if we're by ourselves? How do we do that if we just say, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. I just don't like his people, so I'm just going to hang out and be by myself and be a Christian. All by myself. How do we exhort each other every day as long as it's called today if we're never around other Christians? We can't. We need each other. I keep telling y'all this is not a solo sport. This is something that we need to do together. We need fellow Christians to encourage us, to, to press us forward, to help us to become the disciples that Jesus has called us to be. You can't follow Jesus by yourself. you just can't. So we come together with fellow believers, and we do it all the time. That's, that's what's kind of carried by this, this thing here where he says, "Everyday, as long as it's called today." And I love that because it's almost like there's some word play going on there, right? Because when today is over, we'll be at tomorrow. But when we get to tomorrow, what's tomorrow called? Today, Right? So today, as long as it's called today, which means every day, all the time. But what does that look like? It looks like gatherings like this. It looks like us coming together to worship on Sundays together like we're doing right now. But, but you know what? It also looks like being in a connect group. It looks like being in a discipleship group where where a couple of men or a couple of women are coming together to to iron sharpen iron, to encourage one another, to push each other further along as followers of Jesus. It looks like that random phone call to check on one another. Conversations over lunch, dinner in each other's homes. It, It looks like serving alongside your fellow believers in the church. It looks like that note that you write and drop in the mailbox. That text message that's, that says, hey, thinking about you, praying about you today. Hope you're doing well. That's what it looks like. The idea is, is that this command is lived out. When, it, when it's lived out, it, it looks like us living life together where, where we see each other more than just once a week, where we interact with each other more than just once a week, where we let this thing called being a disciple permeate into every aspect of our lives. And as we do that, we encourage each other onward to be more like Jesus, to follow Christ better. We need each other. And in verses 14 and 15, we see the final thing that we need if we want to avoid the greatest threat to the rest that Jesus provides. Take a look with me, verse 14. For we have come to share in Christ. If indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end, As it is said, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. If we want to avoid the greatest threat to the rest that Jesus provides, the third thing that we need is Jesus. We need Jesus. The idea of of coming to share in Christ means that we have become partners with Christ, which means we need him. We're partners with his mission. We're partners in following him as he leads us, which means we need to listen to Jesus. And again, you're seeing this stress here in the text being placed on the importance of endurance. Why? Why? Why, why again are we seeing this, this emphasis on endurance? Maybe it's because God knows that, that, that sometimes we're going to ask the question, am I really saved? Am I really a Christian? Maybe God knows that he understands and so he's trying to give us some little bit of encouragement here. You see, in moments like those, he knows that, that we want an answer. And what I've observed in my experience, this is just my experience, is that most often when people ask that question, am I really saved? Am, am I really a Christian? They've had a moment of genuine salvation. Not, not always, but most of the time. They've repented of their sin they, they've come to follow Jesus, and, and what I've found is that most of the time, again, not always, but most of the time, they're, they're asking this question because they're seeing some, some sort of sin in their life, and that's upsetting them. It grieves their heart to know that they've sinned against God. They're troubled by the existence of sin in their life, and that should encourage us. Like, have you ever thought about that? Like, when, when you sin, when you rebel against God, and, and, and you feel grief over that, that should encourage you. You know why it should encourage you? Because that means that the Holy Spirit is at work in you. You won't be convicted of sin apart from God working in your life. Sin won't matter to you if God's not working in your life. So if you're struggling with conviction over some sin in your life, that is a sign that you are, in fact, a Christian, that God is working on you. Lean into that. Repent of your sin. Ask him to forgive you. Then stand up and follow Jesus. That's what this should help us to see. We praise God that he's convicted us over our sin. We praise God that he sent his son to pay the price for that sin. We accept the free gift of grace and then we get up and we start following Jesus again. In other words, we endure. We keep pursuing Jesus. We keep looking to be more like Jesus. You you hear him speak and you listen. Listen. You know that you're truly saved. If you endure, you maintain your faith. You continue to place your hope in Jesus. You don't place your your hope in yourself. It's not like you sin, you fall down, you're like, man, I messed up again. I'm just gonna clean myself up and it'll all be good. No, You, you go to Jesus and you say, I need your help with this. And then you trust him to help you. You endure because we need Jesus. So our author report repeats in, in, in the end of this here, he, he repeats that warning from Psalm 95. But now, now he points it straight at us. Now he's saying to us today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Today. When when you feel that conviction over sin, don't ignore it. That's that's not Josh. That's not me. That's the Holy Spirit. That's that's Jesus talking to you and saying, hey, hey, I'm calling you back. I'm wooing you in. Come, follow me. That's not me. It's Jesus. Today, if you hear his voice, listen. Listen. Today, as as Christ woos you back to himself, pay attention. We don't need another list of steps to take. We we don't need a program to follow. We we don't need a new outlook on life. What we need is Jesus. We need to listen to him. We, We need to hear his voice to choose Jesus. So today... If you hear his voice, listen, follow, repent, endure. The greatest threat to the rest that Jesus provides, that that rest from the weight of our sin, that, that rest from the belief that we have to earn our salvation, that we have to just be good enough, that rest from a fear of death, The greatest threat to the rest that Jesus provides is unbelief. And if we want to avoid that threat, Hebrews 3 is showing us that there are really three things we need, three pillars of support to to avoid that threat. We need to be careful. We need each other. And we need Jesus. In the last four verses of this chapter, the author turns back to that greatest generation that generation back in the wilderness. And he does so to round out his point. He asks a series of questions that are meant to show how, how great a threat unbelief really can be. So he asks us in, in verse 16, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Well, was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest? But to those who were disobedient. So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. That greatest generation saw the miracles. Have you thought about that? Like they, they saw it with their, their own eyes. They, they experienced it for themselves. It's not like they opened up their Bibles to Exodus and they, they, they didn't read about it in Exodus. They lived it. They saw the sea part in front of them and they walked across on dry land. They watched the sea swallow up the army that was pursuing them. They ate the manna and the quail that God provided. They drank the water that God provided when there was no water. They saw the pillar of fire. They saw the pillar of cloud. They experienced all of it for themselves. They lived it out. They didn't hear about it from grandma and grandpa. They lived it. Yet their unbelief prevented them from believing the promises of God that he would take them into the promised land. They were too afraid to actually follow God's promises. It prevented them from entering the rest that God had provided. And even Moses, Moses himself, as as great as Moses was, Moses didn't get to enter either. Because Moses rebelled too. In a moment of weakness, he struck the rock that he was not commanded to strike. But water came out. God watered his people, he watered their animals. And Moses was taken up on a hill, standing there on the edge of the promised land, and God showed all of it to him. Said, this is it, you're here. That's the land. That's the rest. It's right there before you. You're not gonna enter. Even Moses didn't get to enter. And all of that was just an earthly rest. Jesus is offering an eternal rest. And what our author is telling us is that we cannot allow unbelief to keep us from that rest. If we hear him calling us into the rest that he's offering, we've got to follow. He's pleading with us. Don't harden your hearts. Believe. Enter into the rest that Jesus has for you. It's so much better than you realize. It's so much better than, than the rest that Moses was offering. This rest is better because Jesus is better than Moses. If we want to avoid the, the greatest threat to the rest that Jesus provides, we need to be careful. We need to guard our hearts. We, we need to not allow doubt to, to bloom into unbelief. We need each other. We we need the body of Christ to exhort and encourage us. We need to build the kind of relationships around us where we have a few people, not everybody, but a few people who when they see us walking into sin, they're able to come up to us and say, hey, Josh, I see the path you're walking. I see where it leads. You need to repent. This is sin. And then we need to be able to respond to that. We need each other. But most of all, We need Jesus. We need to listen to him. As we hear him woo us unto himself, as we hear him call us back to him, we need to follow. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Come follow Jesus. Let's pray. Father God, as we have looked at your word here, as we've thought about this rest that you've offered us, I I, I think about so many times, there's so many things that just want to get in the way of us coming into that rest. And and I freely admit, Lord Jesus, that there are times where doubt occurs and, and the easy path is just to give in to that doubt. And let that doubt lead us from from just doubt into full-on unbelief. But God, as we think about that, as as we confess that to you right now, God, I, I just ask that when those moments of doubt come, you'd just come up and you'd remind us that you're right there with us. That you would speak to us That we would hear your voice. And when we hear you speaking to us, when we hear your voice, we wouldn't harden our hearts. We wouldn't ignore it. But we'd, we'd lean into that. We'd listen to that. We'd follow that. God, would you work in our lives. Some of us, we've walked around and it's like we've had earplugs in our ears. We just don't want to hear you talking to us. God, would you remove those earplugs and just speak so that we can hear? Would you help us to be the disciples you've called called us to be? Would you lead us into the rest that you're offering us? The rest that that tells us that we don't have to earn our salvation because you came and you lived a perfect life on the cross. You died the death we deserve to die. You were buried in a borrowed tomb But on the third day you rose in victory Over sin and death Giving us your righteousness In exchange for our sin So we're free from the bondage of sin We're free from the weight of our sin It no longer has dominion over us Would you remind us of that? Would you help us to lean into that? To walk in that To live that out God, we need a Messiah like you. Help us to worship you. Help us to make much of your name. Help us to follow you, to be your disciples. God, I ask if, if there's somebody in here today that isn't your disciple. that you would work on them right now. Stir their heart. Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.